1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Well, we've been off for a couple weeks, and I hope you had a good holiday. We had a good one here at, at CIP. Uh, for my part, I spent a lot of time working on uh, my new book, which I don't think I've mentioned yet. I'm working on a book called the case right now called The Case for Fossil Fuels, and it's being published by Penguin slash Portfolio. Uh, which is is really exciting. Anyway, when you have a book deadline, uh, your holidays are not quite as as relaxed, but uh, I really like the book. It's it's a lot of fun, so I hope you had a lot of fun over your holidays as well. Um, To end the last year and to bring in the new year, we are going to discuss uh, the top energy stories of 2013. And and to do it, once again, we're going to bring in Marlo Lewis, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, who I think did the top stories of 2011. We might have missed 2012, but uh, he did a good job in 2011. So he's back for 2013. So we're going to talk about the top stories. And that should lead us into a whole new year of power hours. We should do another 50 power hours or so this year. And uh, it's been a lot of fun doing it. I I get a lot of positive feedback from it. Uh, Make sure to, to share the show with with people on on iTunes, encourage them to subscribe, and we'll uh, talk to Marlo Lewis in a second. And then I'll see you on the other side.
0: Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: We're now joined once again by Marlo Lewis of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Marlo, welcome back to Power Hour. Hey, Alex.
0: I'm so glad you had me back. Uh, we should we should definitely talk more often than once a year. I think we do, but this is our only regularly scheduled
1: talk. I know. Well, we'll we'll have to get you know your people and my people to to book a more regular uh, social calendar, uh, especially especially when I'm in when I'm in uh, D.C. The, the few times that anyone wants me there. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk now. It, it, it does bear saying that you are, I believe, the second most frequent guest in Power Hour history. So in oh, Power Hour terms, you know, once, once a year is like seeing someone 10 times a day in normal life. Uh, but it's <laughs> worth it because we need to do this uh, year-end review and you've got, a, you've got a, a broad focus in your work. So let's, we're going to do the top, top five stories of the year. And you've told me them in advance, so I'll I'll ask you about them. And then uh, if I have anything to say, I will chime in. So you had as number five, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. What's, everyone's familiar with that on some level, but what's the story there?
0: Well, I think the story there is that the debate on the Keystone pipeline um, mostly addresses what I would call peripheral issues. Uh, So, the the public really doesn't understand what's at stake here. And by peripheral issues, I mean uh, issues like, well, will it create a lot of jobs or just a few jobs? Will it lower or raise gasoline prices in the Midwest? Will will there be uh, risks of oil spills? Will this reduce or increase incremental greenhouse gas emissions? And these, these are really all small potatoes matters, and they distract from the main issue, which is simply that North America is developing into the world's great energy-producing province. Um, we are set to overtake, uh, we have already overtaken Saudi Arabia and Russia as the leading um, oil-producing uh, nation in the world and in just a few short years we're on North America is on track to you know to becoming uh, the next the next OPEC in terms of you know the, the overall production of, of gas and oil And the Keystone pipeline from, a, from this broad economic perspective is important because it helps to integrate the energy markets of the United States and Canada. And it's and the opposition then to the Keystone Pipeline is really about preventing the North American energy colossus from developing. Um, it's it's an attempt to keep this genie in the bottle, whereas in fact public policy should be designed to unleash this emerging colossus, and so. The, the real thrust behind the opposition to Keystone Pipeline, I think, is just a kind of visceral hatred of oil and of oil companies, and so the idea is that anything that hurts them in any way is good, but you and I both know that, uh, that energy production is one of the few bright spots in the U.S. economy today, and it, it's an amazing success story. Uh, unconventional gas and oil are boom industries. Um, they have they have generated, you know, just in the last few years. If you're looking at it just as a politician, uh, 72 billion dollars worth of new tax revenues, according to Daniel Jurgen, um, this this boom in in shale gas and oil has basically given the average household in the United States an extra $1,200 a year in disposable income because of reduced energy costs, direct energy costs because of the reduced costs of goods and services made with energy, and also because of just these tens of thousands of new high-paying jobs that have been created and billions and billions of dollars of of additional GDP. and this has all happened in the, during a period of recession. Uh, so it's quite amazing that you have this boom industry in the midst of a recession. The recession would have been worse had it not been for gas and oil. And the, the, the natural course of this industry is to link up, uh, you know, across the imaginary lines in the sand, which is the, which is the boundary between the U.S. and Canada. And that's what the anti-keystone uh, XL pipeline movement wants to stop. They want to stop this market-driven, uh, prosperity-creating uh, engine of growth. And they do so based on these phony issues like oil spills. Okay, sure, there uh, there will be an increase in oil spill leaks as a result of this. All pipelines leak. but uh, what people need to understand is the decision to what, uh, on whether to have this per- allow this pipeline to be built or not is supposed to be based on what's called a national interest determination. There are already more than 2.5 million miles of oil and gas pipelines crisscrossing the United States. The idea that somehow if we just add another thousand miles or so to this vast system, it will push us over some kind of national interest tipping point is is ridiculous i mean does anybody think that the that two point five million miles of pipeline today jeopardizes the u s national interest No. without those we'd be back in the stone age you know and uh... and and so if two point five million miles of pipeline it does not imperil the the national interest then adding another thousand miles certainly can so I I mean, so that's just absolutely silly. And then you also, of course, have the uh, alarms about how this will increase incremental greenhouse gas emissions uh, because uh, tar sands oil is, is more carbon intensive to extract than conventional oil. But my friend, and I think you know him too, Chip Knappenberger over at the Cato Institute Um, He uh, used a climate model uh, developed by our own Environmental Protection Agency. And so he made the most generous assumption possible, which is that all of the oil that would be shipped from Canada to the United States would be new oil that would never have been brought out of the ground but for the Keystone pipeline. And he still... Found that all this would do in terms of climate change is add uh, an extra one one hundred thousandth of a degree Celsius to global warming by the year 2100. So this argument that you hear from people like Bill McKibben that it's game over for the climate if we build the Keystone pipeline is totally phony. It's just it's just it's silly to the max, and so. So that's why, I, that's why I'm saying is the real issue here, well, one of the real issues is simply that some people don't want America to be able to develop economically, and, and a large part of that development right now in the United States is in the energy area. They want to shut that down. But the other issue that I think people don't think about enough is that what you have here is... A group of people like Bill McKibben who think that if they make enough noise, if they if they harass enough members of Congress, if they organize enough demonstrations, if the demonstrations are disruptive enough, then they somehow are entitled to upset and, and, and ruin the business plans of other people who have invested billions of dollars to bring to develop a lawful commodity and bring it to the market. So I think really the heart of this issue is, is our government going to be a government that protects the rational and industrious from the quarrelsome and contentious, (laughs) or is it going to be a government that empowers the quarrelsome and contentious so they can use political coercion to destroy private industry? And I think that's really... That's really the, the the heart of the issue here is, you know, is our government going to aid and abet the forces of political plunder or is it going to protect people's property rights? And that's that really sort of goes to the very constitutional basis of our society. And I think that's really the heart of the issue. Uh, those, I think, I,
1: wow, I, I learned three things from that, which is, is rare for one answer. Uh, <laughs> um and then we might slightly disagree on one but um the i just want to, to highlight what what struck me as as you were talking so one is you mentioned this issue of uh, the the colossus and, and what what struck me about but but more the idea of an alliance and I, i've done a lot of work in canada and talked to a lot of canadian companies and and pe- and people in the canadian energy industry but i don't think i had a full appreciation for Thinking, I think it's it is helpful to think of the U.S. and Canada as as the the beacons of the world of oil, and engaging in a combination of engaging in human ingenuity to develop all these new energy resources, and having a right and and certainly um, a lot of morality in in doing that. And that represents a big improvement because they're producing energy, but also because they're creating a freer world market. Which the oil industry certainly needs. And I think the reason I had rebelled against this a little bit, or hadn't seen it in this light, is because unlike you, most people who talk about this issue have a lot of xenophobia to them, and they talk about well, energy independence, and we need to be energy independent, and we should produce everything here, and and as if, and saying in effect, well, we shouldn't use oil at all because it. Comes from the East now. There are a lot of problems in, Mideast. in the Middle East, um, and I think we could have a lot better foreign policy. But oil is so important to life that I just rebel when people say, "Oh, it's not ethical to use oil from the global market," or when you have these. Like concocted economic scenarios about well, we're going to all be deprived of oil tomorrow because we're at the mercy and Saudi Arabia is going to cut us off and everyone's going to go. There's this this fear mongering, but I think what you're doing is you're you're taking the legitimate element, which is that there's this huge positive opportunity to have a more prosperous, freer, more secure global market, and and that's what's at stake here. Would you agree with that, or would you comment on that?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I would, I would comment on that. I mean, I, I, know, I know that some people, and even my own organization, um, published a paper that argued, it, we didn't write it, but we published it, that argued that Canadian oil is ethical oil. And so, um, you know, your, the argument was, well, you know, like it or not, you need to, you need to put a petroleum product of some kind in your automobile. Uh, unless you're one of those people who's wealthy enough to buy a Tesla, for example, and so where do you want the oil to come from? You want it to come from your friends and neighbors in America and the the, the good folks up in Canada, or do you want to buy it from Saudi Arabia? Um, so I mean, there is there is that argument, but I I I don't I don't stress it. I mean, I I, I see the point in it, um, uh, but um, you, you know I. I I think I think probably the more important point along those lines, though, is that this uh, development of of gas and oil in in the United States and in North America generally um, is definitely uh, having a geopolitical consequence that I think most Americans would like, which is that um, North America is becoming more important in in, in, in global energy markets, and in determining, for example, the global price of oil, then the Middle Eastern countries, or at least the, the uh, there's a shift going on, and, and especially where, uh, because of the, the development of shale gas, uh, we, are, we are cutting into, or we, at least we have the potential to cut into Russia's dominance of gas markets in Europe. And as, 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 as I'm sure you're aware, Russia has often used its dominance of natural gas supply as a tool of coercion in Europe. It's, mu- it's, it's actually difficult to use oil as a weapon. People, uh, people I think don't understand this very well, but the, the uh, oil is a, is a globally traded commodity and even in the, day, the dark days of the oil embargo of 1973, the United States still imported oil. In fact, we imported more oil uh, uh, in 1974 than we did in 1973, because the oil that the Saudis wouldn't sell us, they sold to others who then sold it to us. But in the case of gas, most of the gas uh, that, 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 Europe, that Europeans buy. Um, comes through pipelines, and so you have this geographic constraint on how the gas reaches its customers, and so Russia has been in a position to threaten and bully uh, its its neighbors, but the development of U.S. shale gas and the potential that the United States will become a major uh, liquefied natural gas exporter undercuts Russia's Power to coerce its European neighbors, and this is really giving uh, the Russians uh, a lot of a lot of uh, anxiety uh, because they don't want they don't want to see their geopolitical uh, influence uh, undermined. But of course, it's in the interest of the United States uh, to reduce Russia's ability to use its energy weapon, its control over natural gas supply. So this is all. This is all. Uh, I think to the to the to the great benefit of the United States and also to the people of the world, uh, because uh, it's not good when uh, when thuggish regimes like like Russia uh, flex their muscles uh, to intimidate their neighbors.
1: Yeah, and the thing I like about the approach you're taking and, and the way I'm I'm taking it and, and trying to reintegrate the issue in my mind is just being more aspirational about it because often it's just seen as oh it's oil is oil is seen as a negative and one of and then these actual challenges are seen as good rationalizations for saying oh we shouldn't use oil so someone you know someone like al gore will mention the middle east not because he really wants to improve energy security and and the free flow of energy but because he wants to destroy it and that's a convenient uh rationalization versus Versus the what the U.S. and Canada are doing is is actually a positive can-do approach where they're seeing, okay, there, there are imperfections in the world market because there's so much statism, and we can talk about the history of that. But they are they're using human ingenuity, to make the world a much a much better place with more energy and a freer flow of energy, and, and they need to make that case. And uh, I think people should focus on that positive aspect rather than some of these. Uh, arguably xenophobic and certainly economically ignorant arguments, such as <laughs> "Oh, we're going to stop terrorism if only we can lower the price of oil." Does anyone remember what the price of oil was pre nine eleven? It was the, maybe one fifth of what it is now, or, or some, I mean, some small uh, fraction. So we could devote another show, if this were a foreign policy show, to, to terrorism. But really, this is, I think, the, the, the international story to tell is that the oil market's becoming, it wasn't a bad market, but it's becoming an even better market thanks to American and Canadian ingenuity overwhelmingly.
0: Yes, yes, I, I would concur with that entirely. It, and of course, the point you're making about terrorism is also very well taken. I believe that the entire 9-11 operation cost about a half million dollars, you know, to train the, the hijackers to fly the planes and uh and so you know it really the price of oil has nothing to do with whether or not uh a terrorist action succeeds or fails because these are all low low budget operations in the main even though their devastation can be horrendous um and so it you know it doesn't really matter whether oil is selling for 50 dollars a barrel or 80 dollars a barrel or whether Saudi Arabia uh you know has uh has has X percent of the market, or X point one percent of the of the global market, you're, you're, the the bad guys are always going to be able to scrape up a half a million dollars to do something bad, um, and so this notion that if we just you know have more fuel efficient cars, things like nine eleven wouldn't happen, uh, is just uh, is just plain ignorant.
1: Now, um, I, I don't want to get into the foreign policy issue, but if anyone wants to see my views on, on this, uh, well, you can search my name in foreign policy, but also the, my course that I taught for the Rand Institute in 2008 called The Triumph and Tragedy of the Oil Industry, which is available uh, free online on, on their website, uh, you can hear about what I think is the, the real relationship, which is the history of how these countries nationalized oil in U.S. appeasement and how that emboldened certain uh, factions, but it's not—it's not about the money per se. It's about—it's about, it's about uh, the precedent. But I want to get to. We'll talk about the others more quickly. But I'm—I'm ha- I'm really interested in what you said about Keystone XL, and I think it deserves highlighting. So, and it's my show, so I'm gonna—I'm gonna focus on a couple of other things you said that I think uh, should be uh, highlighted. Let's see. You had, um, okay. There was the. Oh yeah, I think the point. It just occurred to me that this point about we've got. How many miles of existing pipeline is it? Two and a half million. And okay, so we've got two and a half million versus, say, uh, a thousand. I think it's a great logical and rhetorical point to use and say, okay, well, like, which ones of the existing ones do you want to shut down? Now, don't actually <laughs> let them do it because Bill McKibben would just, you know, take a, you know, a large equivalent of a crowbar to all of it. But uh, it's worth because there, there's this, what, what, what people often are cashing in on is the fear of the new, and and they think that these things are alien when in fact they're uh, they're normal. And so if you say, okay, well, like, what? Why don't we? If it's wrong to have a thousand, well, if it's good to stop a thousand uh, mile pipeline, well, let, why don't we just stop a million feet of pipeline? Let's just shut them down. We don't have to keep them. We have free we have free will. Let's let's do that. And it would be just. It makes it completely clear that this is objecting to a pipeline, this is completely arbitrary. And it's just a scaremongering technique taking advantage of the fact that people aren't familiar. And also, the more you stress the existing pipeline network, the more it, it normalizes or de-alienizes pipelines. And people say, oh, pipelines are just a really good way uh, of shipping oil. So I thought that was a, an important point. And then the last thing, um, which is another thing I haven't thought about enough is, or, or stressed enough anyway, is the moral case against what we can call the climate thugs, but the, the people who, they, but they really, and I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, a major contributor to 350.org because I had to pay Bill McKibbin $10,000 to debate me. Uh, so I'm on the list and I get, <laughs> and I've, I've gotten emails to effect effective as one of our most generous donors, dot, 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 as if another check is coming. Uh, but anyway, that's just kind of an amusing thing. But it is interesting to be, and it, it is interesting to be on that list. But Bill McKibben's calls to action are so much, if we raise a ruckus, we can stop this. as if that is any kind of uh, proper philosophy of being a citizen, that you just you just go nuts and you say whatever you need to say and you yell and you tie yourself. You know, strap yourself uh, to the fence in front of the White House, and you get arrested, and that this is somehow okay, and that that policy should be set by the lowest common denominator of human decorum and the highest amount of free time for unemployed losers. So that's those are the those should be the variables that increase public policy. So you have these thugs who just. Who can do anything? That that I think is something that we can powerfully frame as exactly what we don't want in this country, and we can condemn them for their uh, for their methods. I mean, uncivil disobedience or whatever, you know, whatever we would end up phrasing it as. I think you're right. It is it's abominable, and if you think about, would you ever act that way on a uh, even well, if it worked?
0: Yeah. Well. There, are, even if it worked. No, I mean I'm not. I'm not uh, opposed to protesting and demonstration. I mean, there's a constitutional, you know, um, protection for that as well—the right to petition and assemble. And uh, and and sometimes I think if you think things are bad enough, um, uh, even civil disobedience, I think, is appropriate uh, if you're willing to take pay the, you know pay the cost in terms of getting yourself arrested. And and then, of course, going back to the Declaration, if things are really bad uh, and you see a long train of abuses all tending in the same direction, namely to erect the despotism, then you have the natural right of revolution. But my point, I think, is simply that uh, there's, there's a basic difference in viewpoint here about the role of government and society. You know, if you go back to Jefferson and his philosophical hero John Locke. They they taught that society flourishes when government protects the rational and industrious from the quarrelsome and contentious, okay? And I think that that's that's absolutely true, and it's because the United States was one of the first countries in the world that was explicitly based on the protection of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which, of course, includes uh, property rights. We became the most prosperous uh country in the world. But the Keystone foes operate on a very different maxim. Uh, they think that government should empower what are called stakeholders, in other words, activists like themselves, in other words, people who are not shareholders in a company, but people who just feel strongly about what some company is doing. They think government should empower them to overturn other people's business plans and stifle wealth creation, they, they, they think that if they just make enough noise and gin up enough protests and promise or threaten to support or oppose enough politicians, that they're entitled to stop other people from taking risks with their own capital, hiring contractors, employing workers. I mean, this is simply the destruction of property rights, this is the destruction, the negation of economic liberty. And that, I think, is exactly what our government is supposed to oppose, not empower. So, I mean, so what we're really seeing here at bottom, I think, is a quarrel between those who want to uh, restrain political predation in the marketplace that's people like you and me and other people who want to practice predate, political predation in the marketplace, who want to use the force of government, the levers of coercion. To stop other people from taking risks with their own capital and from making contracts voluntarily with other people who want to buy their serv- buy their services or sell products to them. I mean, so um, th- that's that's how that's how I see this. I mean, you know, the thing is that you know there's there's this wonder. I'm sure you've read Frederick Bastiat, you know, and uh, he has this wonderful discussion of of political plunder, and how, 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 how do we recognize political plunder when we see it? And he says, well, it's very simple. Ask yourself if someone could do this on his own legally, or, or, you know, and and so, like, you know, legally you can't just walk up to someone and take money out of their pocket, okay? Well, so that means if there's a law that allows you to do it, that law is an unjust law. It's a form of legal plunder. And and that's a it's a very simple test, uh, and and I think you know the Keystone Pipeline uh, crowd, they're trying to use the power of government to disrupt a lawful enterprise that they as a mob would not be able to do directly. I mean, if they did it directly, they'd all go to jail, you know. But they think if they make enough of a of a if they're disruptive enough, then they'll get the government to do it for them, and. This, is, this means that government now has, instead of becoming an instrument of justice, becomes an instrument of injustice. And so that's, that, I think, is, is, is kind of the, the real moral issue at the heart of this debate over the, over the Keystone Pipeline. Is our government going to be an instrument of justice and protect people's freedom to, uh, to truck barter and trade? you know, and take risks with their own capital, uh, or is the government going to become an instrument of confiscation? Because that's really what you do when you prevent people from taking risks with their own capital. You have confiscated the property right that they have in that capital. The capital is not really yours if you can't use it. And that's what they're trying to do with uh, tra- the Trans Canada Corporation and every other company that wants to do business with the pipeline. They're trying to prevent those people from, exer- from using their property uh, as they, you know, according to their own best judgment of what's what what is in their interest uh, to uh, what is in their best interest. And so, you know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's in a way, it's very sim- similar to centralized planning, except uh, this is this is not centralized uh, planning to develop e- economic resources. It's centralized planning to prevent uh, the development of economic resources. Yeah, I think
1: that's that's very important, and it and it's why I think environmentalism has a lower moral stature than standard. Uh, statism, because it's it's much more overtly anti-production um, and anti-human, whereas ultimately statism is, in practice, anti-production, anti-human, but at least it's specifying a human and productive goal. And I think the point you made about the the stakeholder mentality is, is well taken and a very important moral point that I don't think I, I hadn't thought of it enough. I used to think about this point in general, the business, but not enough lately with with energy. And it is that you do have this contrast of the rational and industrious and the stakeholders, the essence of them. Now there are some who are decent people and productive and whatnot, but the essence of making that differentiation is that they are not the productive people. So it's it's in effect the not the, the only people who aren't considered stakeholders are the productive people and, and stakeholders are considered the ones that mattered, and this is this is pure Atlas Shrugged, where the, you know, the only people that don't matter morally in that society are the producers, and you see what happens when you don't morally value the rational uh, and industrious, and and it's a very powerful and important point for us to make that what kind of what kind of people do we want to value in society, and do we just want to value the people who don't produce anything, who don't even really think and create value, but who just are perpetually finding problems with everything and complaining and causing problems because that's that's who the Bill McKibbens of the world. I mean, that is what Bill McKibben is. Although he works, he's industrious in opposing industriousness uh, right, in terms of, right. of prolific. Uh, but that is that is the direction that they are are taking us in, and it's. I think I think if if it's seen in the right light, it's. It's extremely unappealing, and it goes against the sensibilities uh, of Americans. And you, you would imagine I mean imagine a bunch of computer stakeholders who all they ever did was picket Apple. And so the new Mac Pro comes out, and they're just outside the Apple store saying like we don't we think this should be more affordable, or we think of course now the Greens are starting to oppose them, but they're they're so marginal with a company like Apple. But because we don't uh, value production in the more overtly physical industries, it's, it's considered totally okay to take a company that has been trying to figure out a way to make the U.S. and Canada more productive and, and more broadly the energy market of the world more productive. And it's totally okay to just say to them, hey, go to hell, your plans are over uh, because, we have, because we're, we're mad and we have this set of, of <laughs> rationalizations.
0: Yes, well, uh, I, I also think that the hypocrisy of these people is, is stunning, and I want to just illustrate that with, with your good friend, Bill McKibben. Um, you know, Bill McKibben uh, absolutely loathes fossil fuels, all right, but, um, but even, even he, I think, knows that his preferred alternatives, you know, biofuels, solar panels, wind turbines, are not up to the task of powering a mo- modern economy, and that he would be nowhere but for the energy technologies that he despises. And this was brought out beautifully by Stephen Colbert. I don't know if you remember back Yeah, I uh, know. Uh, you,
1: lo- you, lo- you really like this line. I really Gold love there.
0: it. But you know, this is when... Bill McKibben was leading one of those Occupy Washington rallies against the Keystone pipeline, and so Colbert had him on the show, and he said to him, and and, and McKibben started complaining about flooding in Vermont, even though, you know, all the data shows that there's been no trend uh, in the United States over the last 70 years or so uh, in flooding. But of course, McKibben attributes every flood to global warming, so he says, now in Vermont we have floods, and McKibben says, and Colbert said, wait, stop right there. You're from Vermont, did you ride your bicycle down here? Did you ride ox cart? How did you get down here? Or do you have a vehicle that runs on hypocrisy? You know, and McKibben had no response to this, que- to this joke, which was you know, predictable, I mean, someone was going to ask him that question sooner or later. And what always strikes me is, is that these itinerant preachers of the eco-apocalypse McKibben, Al Gore, the thousands of, of diplomats who go to these UN climate conferences every year, they live a very highly carbon intensive lifestyle. They they get in and out of limousines, they fly on jets, you know, uh, some of them even fly in private jets like Al Gore. And so if they, if even these sanctimonious people need oil, well then other ordinary people need oil too. So. Oil is an essential commodity, but if it's an essential commodity, then it should be brought to market by the most efficient means. And what is that, Alex? We all know it's pipelines. It's not on barges, it's not trains, you know, it's pipelines. So if everybody, even they need oil, then obviously the oil should be brought to market in the most efficient way, and that's through pipelines. So why are they opposing Keystone XL? Because some people, some people can get, either, if not rich, they can also get very famous and influential by attacking uh, the, uh, the, the energy sources that make their own activities possible. Uh, it's just like, I remember John, I used to think, uh, and of course, you know, Anne Rand wrote a lot about this, but I used to think a lot about uh, John Kenneth Galbraith and people like that when I was growing up. Who were who were these writers who got fantastically rich attacking capitalism, you know? And it's biting the hand that feeds you. It's in, it's it's they're ingrates, you know. And uh, and ingratitude is not a pretty thing.
1: So i I have expressed on this show many times that I'm very wary of hypocrisy arguments. Um, although hypocrisy is worth worth noting, but the, the, the challenge with hypocrisy arguments is that is in conceding any kind of idealism so i would rather that bill mckibben champion oil like i have no problem with him and i don't think you do either riding in a bunch of planes to do important things my problem is that his important thing is to say that we shouldn't ride in planes but when people criticize al gore it's often to say well the main thing is he should be more modest no he he should stop trying to destroy industrial civilization and, that, and, and in effect, he's being good by contradicting his goal. Now, you could say he's being lavish and whatever, but it's actually the good part of these guys that to do something that they regard as important, that they are using the means of doing important things, which is energy. So what, what I think where we unite here is that what they are illustrating is that to accomplish anything important in life, and certainly large-scale goals, you need cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and so you should be grateful. And even if you think there are problems with it, the attitude of these people is disgusting. I mean, even if you think there's, it's some sort of tragedy that the best form of energy we have has this fatal flaw, you'd, be, you'd honor them and be very sad and somber about it. But you wouldn't just be spitting on them as they're flying you to Istanbul, where you allegedly need to hold a conference on how we're using... Uh, too much fuel. Now, you could make an argument in terms of their own, and, and I do tell, that said, I do tell them, look, if you really want to set an example, philosophy starts at home, why don't you go retreat into you know, some sort of wood bunker and get a 2400 baud modem and you know, maybe put some posts on Reddit about your lifestyle and get other people to, to copy it. And they, they have this interesting argument, which I don't want to go too much into, but that, well, individual action doesn't work which is a convenient view and makes absolutely no sense because, of course, individual action works for every individual. And a lot of good behavior in the world is started by, by models. So anyway, but my main takeaway is they are just another illustration that energy is, is, uh, is valuable. Now, we have four more of the top stories and we're almost out of time. So let's Let's, let's just run through these, and I want you to give a one-paragraph summary of each, and I, I may or may not chime in. But, the, okay. uh, but these are very important for, for people to know about, and not all of them. I think we, have co- we haven't covered all of them sufficiently on the show. Some of them we haven't covered at all. Uh, the case against climate alarm, what's, what's your summary of that?
0: Okay, the summary of that is that we hear over and over again that it's worse than we thought. It's worse than we thought. And that's not a scientific finding. That's a political mantra. In fact, it's better than they told us. And what we're seeing, we've, we're now in at the toward the end of the seventeenth year of no net global warming. And this one consequence of this is that the computer models that the that the IPCC, the so-called scientific consensus, has been using to generate these scary forecasts to try to persuade us that global warming is this crisis that threatens the survival of civilization and the habitability of the earth, these computer models have been over-predicting the amount of observed warming of the last 17 years by at least 300 percent, and over the last 20 years by something, by at least 100 percent. And so what that means is that, is that, is that, the available evidence suggests that the world that the war, that the climate is less sensitive to increases in greenhouse gases than the scientific establishment has been telling us, uh, and that means that there is likely to be much less warming than they have forecasted. Which means that even if warming has bad consequences, those will be smaller than they have been warning us about, and uh, and they're they're. There are a bunch of other studies that are out there that I think that are really uh, interesting uh, studies that suggest that the that the net contribution of Antarctica and Greenland ice sheets, the big ice sheets, to sea level rise over the next century will probably be around an inch. So you know, Al Gore's twenty feet of sea level rise is not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen in, in the lifetimes of our children and our grandchildren. There isn't going to be this huge wall of water that sweeps across the world and inundates hundreds of millions of people. I mean, that's just all science fiction. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll... Oh, and then here also, I mean, there has been no change in the strength or frequency of, uh, of hurricanes over the last century in the United States. Uh, there has been no change in the intensity or frequency of landfalling hurricanes worldwide over the last 70 years. So this, this notion that, uh, that, you know, weather is becoming more extreme and it's due to global warming has no, no empirical scientific validity. And maybe there is some theoretical basis for it, but we won't even be able to measure the changes. For several decades, even if they're right about the theory, so so when people try to scare us that this, you know, that Hurricane Sandy or the drought in the Midwest <clears throat> is due to global warming, there is all kinds of science out there that rebuts that. So I would say that it's been a it's been a very good year uh, for those of us who take a non alarmist view of, of global warming. Yeah, and for anyone
1: with. Any amount of common sense were obviously much safer from the climate than any of those previous people and those allegedly wonderful early Holocene climates or any other climate. I mean, just the the role of technology in climate is not discussed at all. And just in common sense, it's crazy. You all, you know, at a common sense level, that your ability to use technology and adapt is the key to dealing with anything. And even if you had three times as many hurricanes, you'd much rather have that than Lose your fossil fuels or lose uh, your your energy, and that goes to social cost of carbon.
0: Yes, well, I think uh, the social cost of carbon has <coughs> emerged as 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 a leading menace to society. This is the idea that that there is a a damage that's associated and can be precisely calculated for every ton of carbon dioxide that's emitted, and so. So so actually, uh, the, the the price that you're paying for oil and and to heat your home and for for electric lighting and so on is much greater than you think it is because every time you use energy, you're harming people and the planet, and and so what I what I've shown in a couple of columns that I've written is that this has first of all the, the social cost of carbon is based on all of these assumptions which cannot be validated, like how sensitive is the climate to increases in greenhouse gases? Uh, nobody, nobody really knows. All that we know is that the models that have been that, that that are based on the current sensitivity assumptions are way over predicting any any warming that's observed. And then and then even more subjective and arbitrary is what's called the damage function that is built into these models that calculate. The social cost of carbon. Those are those are uh, models that are that assume that uh, an increase in global temperature by X percent leads to a reduction in global GDP of X percent. And if, and as as you were just saying, Alex, uh, that, that's crazy because what really determines the impact of any climate change or variability on us uh, mostly is technology. It's the reason why since the 1920s for example even though the world has warmed up uh the the aggregate deaths worldwide due to related to extreme weather have declined by 93% and that's astonishing when you consider that there are four times as many people living in the world today as there were in 1920 still a 93% reduction in total deaths related to extreme weather a 98% reduction in the in death rates, in other words, death per thousand. So, so technology really uh, trumps uh, uh, weather or cl- climatic factors uh, in, m- in most situations. And so anyway, so they have these arbitrary assumptions uh, that are built into these models. And the net effect of the models is that it makes uh, low-cost energy look unaffordable. Oh, well, you know, we, you know, it's, it's really cheap now to you know to to generate gas to generate electricity from gas or to heat your home from gas but actually it's really expensive and so we and so it, it makes low cost energy look unaffordable it look it makes eco, uneconomic energy like wind and solar power which are not fit to to sustain uh, the electric demand of, of of any industrial society because they're useless as base power they're 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 pretty much useless as peaking power all right they're they're the the, the kilowatts from these intermittent unreliable sources are not very valuable but through the hocus pocus of social cost of carbon calculation you can make those uneconomic energies look like a bargain at any price and so. Uh, this has become the latest rationale, this social cost of carbon, for the EPA's greenhouse gas regulations, for Department of Energy uh, regulations. And, and so, hence, the social cost of carbon has become a real social menace. So, that's all I want to say yeah, about that. I think that.
1: it's just important for people to, to track how there's always a new pseudoscientific garb of the basic idea, which is that fossil fuels are destroying our planet and or that fossil fuels are a social menace and, uh, fossil fuels are an incredible social value. So if anyone was wanted to use this terminology, they would talk about the social value of carbon, which is all, uh, all around them. And, and those energy sources are, uh, are a bargain. Um, next campaign right. against natural gas exports, renewable fuel standard legal plunder. You have those lumped together.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was a, <clears throat> I guess it was a simple point that, uh, you know, a core constitutional principle is equality under law. Okay, and one of the things that I noticed was, and, and, and I thought this was very useful because there are a lot of people on the left and a lot of liberals who are to for whom. The equality under law is is, is a principle that is near and dear. And so I wanted to show them that some of their favored policies uh, actually violate this principle very directly. And so you can see that very easily in the renewable fuel standard. That's the ethanol mandate, okay? Because what the ethanol mandate does, it says, "You, you, you refiners over there, you have an obligation a legal obligation to buy ethanol to process the ethanol and then to sell the ethanol and the, the, you know in a free society nobody has an obligation to buy someone else's products unless you make an arrangement or agreement voluntarily to do so you know and and i said let's you know let's just put the shoe on the other foot here imagine if corn farmers imagine if there were some law that said that corn farmers had to blend uh uh in into their produce certain annually increasing volumes of of rice wheat and soybeans you know I mean these farmers would be taking pitchforks to uh, yeah
1: that's a that's a great point
0: you know or or imagine if they had instead of instead of you know uh, refiners having a renewable volume obligation which is how many billions of gallons of ethanol they have to buy and blend and sell every year imagine if corn armor farmers had seed volume obligations or pesticide volume obligations or fertilizer you know where congress would actually specify these types of seeds these types of fertilizers these types of pe- pesticides you must buy uh, you must use a certain percentage of those it, every year and it increases over a 15 year period and you know there would be such outrage and hue and cry because then the farmers will say well no you're we don't work for those people you know we we don't just because they are in business doesn't mean we are obligated to serve them or make a market for them and so this policy very obviously you know violates the principle of equality under law. Um, and then I also looked at it in terms of the, the, uh, <clears throat> the Dow Chemical organized campaign against natural gas exports. Dow Chemical uses natural gas as a feedstock, so Dow Chemical wants natural gas prices to be low. And Dow Chemical believes that if they just prevent natural gas companies from exporting uh, their get any gas you know overseas that that will increase the domestic supply of gas and gas prices will fall well you and i know that that's free lunch economics that if you prevent an industry from growing its market investment will 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 decline in that industry and pretty soon you'll have less of supply from that industry and prices will rise but that aside my point was simply that dow chemical would be outrage if someone were to tell them, no, you can't sell your product overseas because we want to increase the domestic supply to re- to lower the price for other people who buy your products here in the United States. And so if Dow Chemical has the right to sell its products to the highest bidder, even if those happen to live you know, in Europe or somewhere else, well, then the natural gas companies should have the same right. And if, if if they don't, then we no longer have equality under law. So that was my that was my simple point there.
1: All right. And our final one, which uh, I just saw an article, I just saw your recent article about this uh, Supreme Court global warming case.
0: Yes, the Supreme Court is now, for the first time, going to review one of EPA's greenhouse gas regulations, <clears throat> and. It, in it's it, the specific regulation states that if the EPA regulates greenhouse gases under any part of the Clean Air Act and they they they, they are already doing this uh, under the part of the Clean Air Act that deals with mobile sources with automobiles then then according to this regulation EPA must apply Clean Air Act permitting programs, there's a pre-construction permitting program and an operating permit program, to stationary sources, in other words, power plants, factories that make steel, that make paper and pulp, make cement and so on. Okay, so, what I did was I did a legislative history analysis. I looked, using Thomas, the search engine of the Library of Congress, I looked at all 692 bills introduced since the Congress that last amended the Clean Air Act, which was in 1989 and 1990. And I looked at all 692 bills that contain the term greenhouse gas. I looked at all 55 bills introduced over that 21-year period that contain the term best available control technology, because that's the that's the emission reduction standard that is that is featured in in one of these main permit programs, and then I also looked at a term called prevention of significant deterioration that appears in 35 bills. That is the type of permit that the EPA says it must apply to stationary sources of greenhouse gases because it's also setting these automobile greenhouse gas. Emission standards. Anyway, so looking through all of those, I wanted to find out whether anybody, uh, whether any bill ever introduced, and most and the, the overwhelming majority of these, you know, were never enacted. Um, whether any of them actually called for, advocated what EPA is 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 or what EPA is doing now. It, it, do, do any of them uh, propose to apply the the permitting programs to stationary sources of greenhouse gases. And what I found was a breathtaking absence of congressional intent. I mean, there are, a lot of members of Congress have proposed a lot of ways to regulate greenhouse gases. Um, but uh, the, only, the only one of these regulatory bills that even passed a single chamber of Congress, which was the Waxman-Markey bill. Uh, the cap and trade bill of 2009, that actually prohibited EPA from applying these permitting programs to greenhouse gases. So anyway, I I, I did this analysis because I wanted the lawyers uh, on our side of the case, and I wanted the, the judges to understand that there has never been any congressional support for what EPA is doing, even among those legislators. Who have called for and advocated regulating greenhouse gases through the Clean Air Act?
1: All right. Well, be, there's lots to discuss about that. We'll have some links on the website to your articles on this, but uh, we need to wrap up because we are—it's called Power Hour—and we're, we're past an hour. Although, hopefully, people appreciate. It. I think we've gotten into a lot of a lot of good topics today. Uh, any any final words for the audience, Marlo?
0: Oh well. Um, I just that I, I hope uh, everybody uh, will will read your your essays on uh, on the morality of of um, energy uh, development and uh, read your the, the way you have applied your own personal uh, uh, it, it, uh, knowledge of jujitsu uh, <laughs> to debating. To debating energy issues, and uh, and the, and that uh, that you and uh, your institute have a very good year in 2014.
1: All right, you too. Okay. Thanks again to Marlo for coming on the show. The thing that I appreciate most about that discussion was Marlo's focus on different. Uh, principles, uh, really political principles, philosophical principles, principles of political philosophy. Uh, It's very rare in the energy discussion. I like to think it's something that that CIP specializes in. Uh, But it it was great to just have somebody continually connecting uh, these energy issues and what the government is doing to basic principles of what the government's job is, what its constitutional responsibility is what's moral, what's the right way to treat different sorts of human beings. I think that's that's definitely, you definitely don't hear that enough in energy discussions and, and you really can't hear it too much. So I want to thank Marlo for that and uh, I'm going to listen to the podcast again just to make sure that I uh, get everything out of it and uh, maybe you'll want to as well. All right, I'm not going to say anything more than that because it was, it was a long session. though I think it was worth it. So I'll just do my usual closing. If you have any questions, as always, you can contact me at alex at alexepstein.com, whether you have love mail, hate mail, questions or comments. Um, trying to think any other news... Uh, well, I'll be on the John Stossel show next week, next Thursday, so check out, that's on Fox Business, and then I think it airs later on Fox News. I should say, I taped an interview, they, they always have the option of not running it, but I taped an interview for a special that they're doing, I think on Global Warming, uh, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, I'll be on that, so make sure, make sure to tape it in any case, and besides that, just make sure that you're signed up for all of our stuff, so industrialprogress.com make sure you're signed up for our newsletter and facebook.com/ thepursuitofenergy of energy is my page facebook.com/ I love fossil fuels is the I love fossil fuels page and then Twitter at Alex Epstein All right next week we will be back with another great guest another great topic until then I'm Alex Epstein this has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.